Who doesn't love an underdog story? You know what I'm talking about? An underdog story. We celebrate them most specifically in sports. Many of you like to watch sports, and maybe you got a taste of that yesterday. Speaking of underdogs, the Tar Heels beat the Gamecocks yesterday, I believe, if anyone saw that on TV. They were certainly underdogs given last year's season. But even bigger than that, even bigger than that, we celebrate these types of stories when there's this miracle that takes place that really shouldn't happen. I remember clearly a couple years ago in the NCAA tournament, there was this 16th seeded team, the uh, University of Baltimore, of Maryland, uh, Maryland, Baltimore County. They were the 16th seed of the tournament. Now, in the history of the tournament, no 16 seeds ever beat a one. And they played this team called the Virginia Cavaliers from the ACC, the number one ranked team of the entire tournament, and they beat them, and they beat them pretty bad. It's the first time that it's ever happened. Quite miraculous, actually. Should have never happened. If they played ten games against one another, they probably would have won nine of them, Virginia. But, but no, this particular game, the smaller team prevailed. Just this weekend, if you like tennis, maybe you've been watching the 15-year-old phenom Coco Golf as she made her way into the third round of the U.S. Open and had just done that previously, beating Venus Williams in the first round at Wimbledon. And who could forget probably the greatest college football upset ever in the history of the sport that kind of had something to do with this town as Appalachian State University marched into Goliath's home in the big house in Michigan and defeated them on their own turf as they were the fifth-ranked team in the country. We love underdog stories. They're great. And they inspire us because they remind us that even the most talented, the most dominant, and the most successful, they can fall too. And although the deck is stacked against the weaker competitor, the game must always be played to decide the winner. Today our scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 17 is often hailed as one of the great underdog stories of the Bible The story of David and Goliath is a story that even most non-Christians are aware of, and it's often the language that's used in sporting events whenever there is this David and Goliath battle going on. But today, I would suggest that maybe we have misread this story. Maybe we have looked at this story from the wrong perspective. In fact, maybe it's not an underdog story at all. Maybe we should take a closer look at it together and in doing so in tandem with the book of Proverbs to help us see this a little bit differently. You see, the story itself begins with two tribes, the tribe of Israel and the uh, Philistines. Both peoples live in a culture that's much different than ours. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and to survive, one must defeat their enemies. It's a tribal society. That's how people survive and live. And at this particular stage in Samuel, the Philistines have gathered in southern Judah on Israel's territory, on their turf, and they've gathered on one hillside, and King Saul and the Israelite army are gathered on the other hillside, staring at them, and there between them is this valley of Elah. And it is there that King Saul and his army toes the line, waiting for something to happen, and what emerges is this giant. 
giant named Goliath, who stands at nine feet, nine inches tall, weighing armor that weighed over 125 pounds, wielding a javelin in his hand that weighed 15 pounds. This guy was unbelievable, and he comes forward from the Philistine army, and he barks out orders and says, how about this? How about instead of us fighting it out army to army, I will go against the fiercest warrior from Israel. And whoever wins the battle will make the other tribe their slaves. Goliath was quite arrogant in doing that because he put the weight of his own country, his own people on his own shoulders. But he knew that he couldn't lose. And truth be told, Vegas' odds of him winning were very high. No one in Israel dared take him on. The scriptures tell us, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Nobody wanted to fight this guy. They knew that they couldn't beat him. And not only that, it would be Israel's demise. So for 40 days, every morning and every evening, Goliath comes out and he begins to mock Israel to their face, defying their God, and asking for a challenger to come out and take him on. And no one would take the bait. Until one day, a shepherd boy from the tribe of Jesse showed up, bringing rations of food for his brothers who were serving in the Israeli army. And upon getting there and seeing all the commotion and seeing the army across the hill, he began to ask the question, well, what kind of reward will be given to the fellow that knocks off this giant? In the midst of that, word gets back to King Saul, who summons David into his presence. Saul tells him, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David refuses to listen to this. He refuses to back down, sharing that as a shepherd, he's fought lions and bears. Tells him this, The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul gives David his armor, and he says, Look, if you're going to fight this guy, you at least need to be prepared for battle, so let me put my armor on you. So he puts it on him, he gives him his sword, and David's walking around in this stuff, and he's just not feeling it. It's not comfortable for him, so he takes it off and says, No, I'm just going to go into battle with my sling. It's what I use every day as a shepherd. So he goes to the river. And as he gathers, he bends down and he picks up five smooth stones and puts them into his pouch. And then he goes to fight this giant. Now Goliath is standing there and he approaches David and he recognizes that this kid's barely old enough to even fight him. And he begins to laugh. And he's like, this is the best that you have got? Really? This kid is bringing a sword to a gunfight. This is unfair. So he begins to curse David by his own gods, and he arrogantly boasts that he will feed his flesh to the birds and to all of the wild animals. But the book of Proverbs reminds us of this. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. As Goliath continues to boast to David, David is undeterred by what he has to say, 
And so he toes the line with this giant and he looks him up square in the eye and he says to him, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. We thought this was a children's story, didn't we? Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but David's approach is different than what we often give him credit for. David is not boasting in his warrior strength. He's not relying on his own skill in battle He's not even brought the typical weapons to wage warfare against this giant. David is teaching Israel a lesson as he faces the giant whose pride is bigger than his nine feet, nine inch tall frame. David relies on his own experience that God has rescued him from the lion and from the bear. He's reliant upon Israel's own experience in their previous battles, knowing that it was God who fought for them and defeated their enemies. It's never been about Israel's skill or their intelligence or their strength. It's always resided in their faith in the God who would deliver them, that God would provide for their success. David's fearlessness doesn't rest in his own ability, but in God's faithfulness to help him defeat the undefeatable giant. And this is exactly what happens as he slings a stone that hits Goliath right between the eyes and brings him down. And I find that it's no coincidence that God gives David the victory in the valley of Elah where the giant's pride that elevated him above everyone else, kind of like the Tower of Babel that sat so tall, it was struck down into the lowest of valleys. Proverbs reminds us, arrogant know-it-all stir up discord, but wise men and women listen to each other's counsel. The Hebrew word for pride is gaion, which literally means high. And its derivative is gaion, which means arrogance. Pride is very dangerous, for it elevates oneself above everyone else. It's self-deceptive in believing that you don't need help, you don't need advice, you don't need counsel from anyone else. And it's focused primarily on making your name great. In other words, becoming an idol, or as an American... An American idol. Goliath embodied this pride, thinking that no one could match his strength or skill. That is why he boldly offered to fight the battle for his own people. He exhibited giant pride, trusting too much in himself, which ultimately led to his own demise. You know, the Proverbs warn us about pride. For the wisest in all of Israel know that thinking too highly of oneself leads you absolutely away from the Lord. Pride is actually attributed to Satan's fall from heaven, and it's been lifted up by many of the early church fathers as the worst of all sins that exist. Pride forgets who and whose you are. 
Feasting on the praises of others and views individual successes as something deserved or earned merely on your own. Pride says, I don't need you. I don't need your help. I can do it myself. Pride says, I want to make a name for me. I want people to know who I am. I want to be famous. I want to be celebrated. I want to be revered. David's fight with Goliath is not an underdog story. Viewing it as such gives David the credit for winning a fight that he couldn't have won on his own. This is not what David sought to accomplish. His frustration was with the Israelite army that drew back in fear of the Philistines. Not trusting in the strength of the God that they had served, the God who had been so faithful to them to win their battles for them. David knew that God was the victor and that his victory over Goliath wasn't about elevating his own status before Israel or before the Philistines, but elevating God's status as the true and faithful God of Israel. Listen to what David says when he speaks to Goliath. He says, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Pride hungers for self-glory, while humility seeks the glory of God. You know, even God's people can fall prey to the self-deception of pride. Pride can lure us into thinking that we are, all that we have and all that we are is a product of ourselves, things that we have worked for and earned. It can make us defensive when we're questioned about something. It can limit us from receiving help even when we know we need help. It can make us superficial in our relationships with one another. And it can lead us to judge others without any self-reflection. Selfish pride can spiral into a giant ego that in time will eventually fall on its head. Jesus warned his disciples of such behavior in the context of the hypocrisy and the pride of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so he says to them, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Proverbs reminds us, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. We know that humility is the antithesis to pride. But let me tell you, humility is not a sign of weakness. David had great humility in his willingness to face this giant because his strength and confidence came from his faith in God and not in himself. He didn't allow his success to defeat Goliath to get to his head. In fact, he was put in Saul's army and he became even more successful And it didn't get to his head, it got to Saul's head. And he became jealous and prideful of himself and worried that David was going to take his throne away. And so Saul became another giant that David had to face. As the church, I find that it's easy for us to recognize the giant pride that exists beyond our walls. We see it very clearly in the world 
We see it very clearly in our own nation. There are giants who lord themselves over others, abusing their power for their own selfish gain while trampling the weak and the poor. And it's not just limited to the political sphere. It's also evident in economics, in education, and in power structures that exist in our society and all over the world. There are a lot of giants. But the truth is, is that even giant pride can infiltrate the church. Worldly knowledge without godly wisdom can often lead us to sinful motives, which then begins to push our own agendas and what we want because we think we know what's best in every situation. Paul addresses this to the church in Philippi, saying, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to say that you and I are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited for his own gain, but that he made himself nothing. And the Greek word here is kenosis. And what that word means is that Jesus emptied himself of his own divinity. He became a human being just like me and you, and he became a servant, and such a servant that he became a servant even to the point of death, death on a cross. So Paul tells us, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus, believe it or not, wasn't an underdog either. While born in a manger, born as a peasant in Galilee, in a ministry that resided in the sticks compared to Jerusalem, many asked, who is this Nazarene? What good can come from Nazareth? Who is this fellow who seems to think he knows it all about the law and the prophets? Who threatens The church as it exists in Israel. Many tried to push him down, and they did, to the point of death. But Jesus willingly gave his life. He didn't resist. Jesus willingly died for us as a sacrifice. That's humility, and there's strength in that. You see, in Jesus' humility, even when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, he refused to let pride creep in. Even when he was tempted by his own disciples not to suffer and die for us, he refused to do that. You see, he gave the self-deception of pride no place to grow and fester in his life. Jesus, the Son of God, who had the authority and the ability to do anything, And to use his power for himself, use that power to help others. And he did it by humbling himself in order to bring glory to God. He gave his life as a sacrifice for you and me to bring glory to God and to save us from sin, especially the sin of pride that says that you and I don't need God and that you and I don't need each other. And together he calls us his church. 
to follow into his footsteps, to live in humility, seeking justice and righteousness in this world. And this humility is not weakness that cowers in fear like the Israelites looking at Goliath. It's a humility that trusts that God is with us, giving us the strength and the ability to face the giants who oppose the will of God. You know, it's not easy to be the body of Christ in a world where selfish pride infiltrates so much of our society. But God is with us. God is with us, just like he was with David. And he calls us not to trust in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own wisdom, or even in our own skills. But to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us show forth the kingdom of God here as it is in heaven. And today, Jesus invites us, his church, to come to his table where we find his nourishment. Today, we are called to set aside our own giant pride and in turn trade that to serve the Lord with humility. Here, we remember who we are and whose we are as we participate in this holy mystery that connects us as God's people who has been called and sent forth into this world. And in humility, we receive this grace as we eat this bread and we drink this cup. And in humility, we go out together to do God's work, not in weakness, but in God's strength to bring glory to his name. And in humility, we recognize that we are not underdogs either. For we serve the God of heaven and earth who is sovereign and who perfectly works through his imperfect church to usher in the reign and the kingdom of God. Amen? So, we don't need to cower in fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. Even when we see those giants before us who curse and confront us, instead, we're to stand firm, to remain faithful, to confront them in the name of the Lord Almighty, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. You see, this is the perspective that we must have. This is the right perspective that the God that we serve is not, nor ever will be, an underdog. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.